0: Welcome, and thank you for joining us for Bygone Tales, episode 27. In this episode, we have the first of the Carnacki the Ghost Hunter stories by William Hope Hodgson. So, without further ado, let's get to it. William Hope Hodgson was an English author. He produced a large body of work consisting of essays, short fiction, and novels spanning several overlapping genres, including horror, fantastic fiction, and science fiction. Hodgson used his experiences at sea to lend authentic detail to his short horror stories, many of which are set on the ocean, including his series of linked tales forming the Sargasso Sea stories. His novels, such as The House on the Borderland, 1908, and The Nightland, 1912, feature more cosmic themes, but several of his novels also focus on horrors associated with the sea. Early in his writing career, Hodgson dedicated efforts to poetry, although few of his poems were published during his lifetime. He also attracted some notice as a photographer and achieved renown as a bodybuilder. He died in World War I at age 40. After his death, Hodgson's work was largely forgotten. In the 1930s, however, Hodgson's supernatural fiction was anthologized in both Colin de la Mer's They Walk Again, 1931, And Dennis Wheatley's A Century of Horror Stories, 1935. This began a revival of interest in Hodgson's work. Hodgson's work was inspirational to many science fiction and fantasy writers. In Britain, both Olaf Stapledon and Dennis Wheatley were influenced by Hodgson's work. Across the Atlantic, Clark Ashton Smith and Henry S. Whitehead were also influenced by Hodgson's writings. Modern authors who cite Hodgson as an influence include Ian Sinclair, Gene Wolfe, Greg Bear, China Melville, Simon Clark, Elizabeth Massey, Tim Levin, and Brian Keane. The Gateway of the Monster by William Hope Hodgson In response to Carnacki's usual card of invitation to have dinner and listen to a story, I arrived promptly at 427 Shane Walk to find the three others who were always invited to these happy little times there before me. Five minutes later, Carnacki, Arkwright, Jessop, Taylor, and I were all engaged in the pleasant occupation of dining. "'You've not been long away this time,' I remarked as I finished my soup, forgetting momentarily Carnacki's dislike of being asked even to skirt the borders of his story, until such time as he was ready then he would not stint words that's all he replied with brevity and i changed the subject remarking that i had been buying a new gun to which piece of news he gave an intelligent nod and a smile which i think showed a genuinely good-humored appreciation of my intentional changing of the conversation later when dinner was finished Carnacki snugged himself comfortably down in his big chair, along with his pipe, and began his story with very little circumlocution. As Dodgson was remarking just now, I've only been away a short time, and for a very good reason, too. I've only been away a short distance. The exact locality, I am afraid, I must not tell you, but it is less than twenty miles from here though, except for changing a name, that won't spoil the story. And it is a story, too, one of the most extraordinary things ever I have run against. I received a letter a fortnight ago from a man I must call Anderson, asking for an appointment. I arranged a time, and when he came, I found that he wished me to investigate and see whether I could not clear up a long-standing and, well too-well authenticated case of what he termed haunting. He gave me very full particulars, and finally, as the case seemed to present something unique, I decided to take it up. Two days later, I drove to the house late in the afternoon. I found it a very old place, standing quite alone in its own grounds. Anderson had left a letter with the butler, I found, pleading excuses for his absence, and leaving the whole house at my disposal for my investigations. The butler evidently knew the object of my visit, and I questioned him pretty thoroughly during dinner, which I had in rather lonely state. He is an old and privileged servant, and had the history of the gray room exact in detail. From him I learned more particulars regarding two things that Anderson had mentioned in but a casual manner. The first was that the door of the gray room would be heard in the dead of night to open and slam heavily, and this, even though the butler knew it was locked, and the key on the bunch in his pantry. The second was that the bedclothes would always be found torn off the bed and hurled in a heap into a corner. But it was the door slamming that chiefly bothered the old butler. Many and many a time, he told me, he had lain awake in and just got shivering with fright, listening, for sometimes the door would be slammed time after time, THUD, 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 so that sleep was impossible. From Anderson, I knew already that the room had a history extending back over a hundred and fifty years. Three people had been strangled in it, an ancestor of his, and his wife and child. This is authentic, as I had taken very great pains to discover, so that you can imagine it was with a feeling I had a striking case to investigate that I went upstairs after dinner to have a look at the grey room. Peter, the old butler, was in rather a state about my going, and assured me with much solemnity that in all the twenty years of his service no one had ever entered that room after nightfall. He begged me, in quite a fatherly way, to wait till the morning when there would be no danger and he could accompany me himself. Of course, I smiled a little at him, and told him not to bother. I explained that I should do no more than look round a bit, and perhaps affix a few seals. He need not fear, I was used to that sort of thing, but he shook his head when I said that. "'There isn't many ghosts like ours, sir,' he assured me, with mournful pride, and by Jove he was right, as you will see.' I took a couple of candles, and Peter followed with his bunch of keys. He unlocked the door, but would not come inside with me. He was evidently in a fright, and he renewed his request that I would put off my examination until daylight. Of course, I laughed at him again, and told him he could stand sentry at the door and catch anything that came out. "'It never comes outside, sir,' he said, in his funny old solemn manner." somehow he managed to make me feel as if i were going to have the creeps right away anyway it was one to him you know i left him there and examined the room it is a big apartment and well furnished in the grand style with a huge four poster which stands with its head to the end wall there were two candles on the mantelpiece and two on each of the three tables that were in the room i lit the lot and after that the room felt a little less inhumanly dreary, though, mind you, it was quite fresh and well-kept in every way. After I had taken a good look round, I sealed lengths of baby ribbon across the windows, along the walls, over the pictures, and over the fireplace and the wall closets. All the time as I worked, the butler just stood without the door, and I could not persuade him to enter, though I jested him a little as I stretched the ribbons, and went here and there about my work. Every now and again he would say, You'll excuse me, I'm sure, sir, but I do wish you would come out, sir. I'm fair in a quake for you. I told him he need not wait, but he was loyal enough in his way to what he considered his duty. He said he could not go away and leave me all alone there. He apologized, but made it very clear that I did not realize the danger of the room, and I could see, generally, that he was in a pretty frightened state. All the same, I had to make the room so that I should know if anything material entered it. So I asked him not to bother me, unless he really heard or saw something. He was beginning to get on my nerves, and the feel of the room was bad enough without making it any nastier. For a time further, I worked, stretching ribbons across the floor and sealing them, so that the merest touch would have broken them, were anyone to venture into the room in the dark with the intention of playing the fool. All this had taken me far longer than I had anticipated, and suddenly I heard a clock strike eleven. I had taken off my coat soon after commencing work. Now, however, as I had practically made an end to all that I intended to do, "'I walked across to the settee and picked it up. "'I was in the act of getting into it "'when the old butler's voice "'he had not said a word for the last hour, "'came sharp and frightened. "'Come out, sir! Quick! "'There's something going to happen!' "'Jove, but I jumped, and then, in the same moment, "'one of the candles on the table to the left went out. "'Now, whether it was the wind or what, I do not know, "'but just for a moment I was enough startled "'to make a run for the door.' though I am glad to say that I pulled up before I reached it. I simply could not bunk out with the butler standing there, after having, as it were, read him a sort of lesson on being brave, you know. So I just turned right round, picked up the two candles off the mantelpiece, and walked across to the table near the bed. Well, I saw nothing. I blew out the candle that was still alight, then I went to those on the two tables and blew them out. Then, outside of the door, the old man called again. "'Oh, sir, do be told, do be told!' "'All right, Peter,' I said, and by Jove my voice was not as steady as I should have liked. I made for the door and had a bit of work not to start running. I took some thundering long strides, as you can imagine. Near the door, I had a sudden feeling that there was a cold wind in the room. It was almost as if the window had been suddenly opened a little." I got to the door, and the old butler gave back a step in a sort of instinctive way. "'Collar the candles, Peter,' I said pretty sharply, and shoved them into his hands. I turned and caught the handle and slammed the door shut with a crash. Somehow, do you know, as I did so, I thought I felt something pull back on it. But it must have been only fancy. I turned the key in the lock, and then again double-locking the door." I felt easier then, and set to and sealed the door. In addition, I put my card over the keyhole and sealed it there, after which I pocketed the key and went downstairs with Peter, who was nervous and silent, beating the way. Poor old bugger! It had not struck me until that moment that he had been enduring considerable strain during the last two or three hours. About midnight I went to bed. My room lay at the end of the corridor upon which opens the gray room. I counted the doors between it and mine, and found that five rooms lay between, and, I am sure you can understand, I was not sorry. Then, just as I was beginning to undress, an idea came to me, and I took my candle and sealing wax, and sealed the doors of all five rooms. If any door slammed in the night, I should know just which one. I returned to my room, locked the door, and went to bed. I was waked suddenly from a deep sleep by a loud crash somewhere out in the passage. I sat up in bed and listened, but heard nothing. Then I lit my candle. I was in the very act of lighting it when there came the bang of a door being violently slammed along the corridor. I jumped out of bed and got my revolver. I unlocked the door and went out into the passage, holding my candle high and keeping the pistol ready. Then a queer thing happened. I could not go a step toward the grey room. You all know I am not really a cowardly chap. I've gone into too many cases connected with ghostly things to be accused of that. But I tell you, I funked it. Simply funked it, just like any blessed kid. There was something precious unholy in the air that night i ran back into my bedroom and shut and locked the door then i sat on the bed all night and listened to the dismal thudding of a door up the corridor the sound seemed to echo through all the house daylight came at last and i washed and dressed the door had not slammed for about an hour and i was getting back my nerve again i felt ashamed of myself though in some ways it was silly for when you're meddling with that sort of thing, your nerve is bound to go, sometimes. And you just have to sit quiet and call yourself a coward until daylight. Sometimes it is more than just cowardice, I fancy. I believe at times it is something warning you, and fighting for you. But all the same, I always feel mean and miserable after a time like that. When the day came properly, I opened my door, and, keeping my revolver handy, went quietly along the passage. I had to pass the head of the stairs along the way, and who should I see coming up but the old butler, carrying a cup of coffee. He had merely tucked his nightshirt into his trousers, and he had an old pair of carpet slippers on. "'Hello, Peter,' I said, feeling suddenly cheerful, for I was glad, as any lost child, to have a live human being close to me. "'Where are you off to with the refreshments?' The old man gave a start and slopped some of the coffee. He stared up at me, and I could see that he looked white and done up. He came on up the stairs and held out the little tray to me. "'I'm very thankful indeed, sir, to see you safe and well,' he said. "'I feared one time you might risk going into the grey room, sir. "'I've lain awake all night with the sound of the door, "'and when it came light I thought I'd make you a cup of coffee.' I knew you would want to look at the seals, and somehow it seems safer if there's two, sir. Peter, I said, you're a brick. This is very thoughtful of you, and I drank the coffee. Come along, I told him, and handed him back the tray. I'm going to have a look at what the brutes have been up to. I simply hadn't the pluck in the night. I'm very thankful, sir, he replied. Flesh and blood can do nothing, sir, against devils, and that's what's in the gray room after dark. I examined the seals on all the doors as I went along, and found them right, but when I got to the gray room, the seal was broken, though the card over the keyhole was untouched. I ripped it off and unlocked the door and went in, rather cautiously, as you can imagine, but the whole room was empty of anything to frighten one, and there was heaps of light. I examined all my seals, and not a single one was disturbed. The old butler had followed me in, and suddenly he called out, "'The bedclothes, sir!' I ran up to the bed and looked over, and surely they were lying in the corner to the left of the bed. Jove, you can imagine how queer I felt. Something had been in the room. I stared for a while from the bed to the clothes on the floor. I had a feeling that I did not want to touch either. Old Peter, though, did not seem to be affected that way. He went over to the bed coverings, and was going to pick them up, as doubtless he had done every day these twenty years back. But I stopped him. I wanted nothing touched until I had finished my examination. This I must have spent a full hour over, and then I let Peter straighten up the bed, after which we went out, and I locked the door, for the room was getting on my nerves. I had a short walk, and then breakfast, after which I felt more my own man, and so returned to the grey room. And, with Peter's help, and one of the maids, I had everything taken out of the room, except the bed, even the very pictures. I examined the walls, floor, and ceiling then, with probe, hammer, and magnifying glass, but found nothing suspicious. And, I can assure you, I began to realize, in very truth, that some incredible thing had been loose in the room during the past night. I sealed up everything again, and went out, locking and sealing the door as before. After dinner, Peter and I unpacked some of my stuff, and I fixed up my camera and flashlight opposite to the door of the grey room, with a string from the trigger of the flashlight to the door. Then, you see, if the door was really opened... The flashlight would blare out and there would be possibly a very queer picture to examine in the morning the last thing i did before leaving was to uncap the lens and after that i went off to my bedroom and to bed for i intended to be up at midnight and to ensure this i set my little alarm to call me also i left my candle burning the clock woke me at 12 and i got up and into my dressing gown and slippers I shoved my revolver into my right-side pocket and opened my door. Then I lit my darkroom lamp and withdrew the slide so that it would give a clear light. I carried it up the corridor about thirty feet and put it down on the floor with the open side away from me, so that it would show me anything that might approach along the dark passage. Then I went back and sat in the doorway of my room with my revolver handy, "'staring up the passage toward the place where I knew my camera stood "'outside the door of the grey room. "'I should think I had watched for about an hour and a half "'when, suddenly, I heard a faint noise away up the corridor. "'I was immediately conscious of a queer prickling sensation "'about the back of my head, and my hands began to sweat a little. "'The following instant, the whole end of the passage "'flicked into sight in the abrupt glare of the flashlight.' There came the succeeding darkness, and I peered nervously up the corridor, listening tensely, and trying to find what lay beyond the faint glow of my dark lamp, which now seemed ridiculously dim by contrast with the tremendous blaze of the flash powder. And then, as I stooped forward, staring and listening, there came the crashing thud of the door of the grey room. The sound seemed to fill the whole of the large corridor, and go echoing hollowly through the house, I tell you. I felt horrible, as if my bones were water. Simply beastly, Jove, how I did stare, and how I listened. And then it came again. Thud, thud, thud. And then a silence that was almost worse than the noise of the door, for I kept fancying that some awful thing was stealing upon me along the corridor. And then, suddenly, my lamp was put out, and I could not see a yard before me. I realized all at once that I was doing a very silly thing sitting there, and I jumped up. Even as I did so, I thought I heard a sound in the passage, and quite near me. I made one backward spring into my room and slammed and locked the door. I sat on my bed and stared at the door. I had my revolver in my hand, but it seemed an abominably useless thing. I felt that there was something the other side of that door. For some unknown reason, I knew it was pressed up against the door, and it was soft. That was just what I thought, most extraordinary thing to think. Presently, I got hold of myself a bit, and marked out a pentacle hurriedly with chalk on the polished floor, and there I sat in it almost until dawn, and all the time, away up the corridor, the door of the grey room thudded at solemn and horrid intervals. It was a miserable, brutal night. When the day began to break, the thudding of the door came gradually to an end, and, at last, I got hold of my courage and went along the corridor in the half-light to cap the lens of my camera. I can tell you it took some doing, but if I had not done so, my photograph would have been spoiled, and I was tremendously keen to save it. I got back to my room, and then set to and rubbed out the five-pointed star in which I had been sitting. Half an hour later, there was a tap at my door. It was Peter with my coffee. When I had drunk it, we both went along to the gray room. As we went, I had a look at the seals on the other doors, but they were untouched. The seal on the door of the gray room was broken, as also was the string from the trigger of the flashlight. But the card over the keyhole was still there. I ripped it off and opened the door. Nothing unusual was to be seen until we came to the bed. Then I saw that, as on the previous day, the bedclothes had been torn off and hurled into the left-hand corner, exactly where I had seen them before. I felt very queer, but I did not forget to look at all the seals, only to find that not one had been broken. Then I turned and looked at old Peter, and he looked at me, nodding his head. "'Let's get out of here,' I said." It's no place for any living human to enter without proper protection. We went out then, and I locked and sealed the door again. After breakfast, I developed the negative, but it showed only the door of the grey room half-opened. Then I left the house as I wanted to get certain matters and implements that might be necessary to life, perhaps to the spirit, for I intended to spend the coming night in the grey room. I got back in a cab about half-past five with my apparatus, and this Peter and I carried up to the gray room, where I piled it carefully in the center of the floor. When everything was in the room, including a cat which I had brought, I locked and sealed the door and went toward the bedroom, telling Peter I should not be down for dinner. He said, Yes, sir, and went downstairs, thinking that I was going to turn in which is what I wanted him to believe, as I knew he would have worried both me and himself, if he had known what I intended. But I merely got my camera and flashlight from the bedroom, and hurried back to the grey room. I locked and sealed myself in, and set to work, for I had a lot to do before it got dark. First I cleared away all the ribbons across the floor. Then I carried the cat still fastened in its basket, over toward the far wall and left it. I returned then to the center of the room, and measured out a space twenty-one feet in diameter, which I swept with a broom of hyssop. About this I drew a circle of chalk, taking care never to step over the circle. Beyond this I smudged with a bunch of garlic a broad belt right around the chalked circle, and when this was complete... I took from among my stores in the center a small jar of a certain water i broke away the parchment and withdrew the stopper then dipping my left forefinger in the little jar i went round the circle again making upon the floor just within the line of chalk the second sign of the sama ritual and joining each sign most carefully with the left-hand crescent i can tell you i felt easier when this was done And the water circle complete. Then, I unpacked some more of the stuff that I had brought, and placed a lighted candle in the valley of each crescent. After that, I drew a pentacle, so that each of the five points of the defensive star touched the chalk circle. In the five points of the star, I placed five portions of the bread, each wrapped in linen, and in the five veils, five opened jars of the water I had used to make the water circle. And now I had my first protective barrier complete. Now, anyone, except you who know something of my methods of investigation, might consider all this a piece of useless and foolish superstition, but you all remember the Black Veil case, in which I believe my life was saved by a very similar form of protection, whilst Aster, who sneered at it and would not come inside, died. I got the idea from the Sigsund manuscript, written, so far as I can make out, in the 14th century. At first, naturally, I imagined it was just an expression of the superstition of the time, and it was not until a year later that it occurred to me to test his defense, which I did. As I've just said, in that horrible black veil business, you know how that turned out. Later, I used it several times, and always I came through safe, until that moving fur case. It was only a partial defense, therefore, and I nearly died in the pentacle. After that, I came across Professor Gardner's experiments with a medium. When they surrounded the medium with a current in vacuum, he lost his power, almost as if it cut him off from the immaterial. That made me think a lot, and that is how I came to make the Electric Pentacle, which is a most marvellous defence against certain manifestations. I used the shape of the defensive star for this protection, because I have, personally, no doubt at all that there is some extraordinary virtue in the old magic figure. Curious thing for a twentieth-century man to admit, is it not? But, then, as you all know, I never did, and never will, allow myself to be blinded by the little cheap laughter. I ask questions, and keep my eyes open. In this last case, I had little doubt that I had run up against a supernatural monster, and I meant to take every possible care, for the danger is abominable. I turned to, now, to fit the electric pentacle, setting it so that each of its points and veils coincided exactly with the points and veils of the drawn pentagram upon the floor. Then I connected up the battery, and the next instant the pale blue glare from the interwining vacuum tubes shone out. I glanced about me then, with something of a sigh of relief, and realized suddenly that the dusk was upon me, for the window was grey and unfriendly. Then, round at the big empty room, over the double barrier of electric and candlelight, I had an abrupt, extraordinary sense of weirdness thrust upon me, in the air, you know, as it were, a sense of something inhuman impending. The room was full of the stench of bruised garlic, a smell I hate. I turned now to the camera, and saw that it and the flashlight were in order. Then I tested my revolver. Carefully, though I had little thought that it would be needed. Yet, to what extent materialization of an abnatural creature is possible, given favorable conditions, no one can say. And I had no idea what horrible thing I was going to see, or feel the presence of. I might, in the end, have to fight with a materialized monster. I did not know, and could only be prepared. You see, I never forgot that three other people had been strangled in the bed close to me, and the fierce slamming of the door I had heard myself. I had no doubt that I was investigating a dangerous and ugly case. By this time, the night had come, though the room was very light with the burning candles, and I found myself glancing behind me, constantly, and then all round the room. It was nervy work waiting for that thing to come. Then, suddenly, I was aware of a little, cold wind sweeping over me, coming from behind. I gave one great nerve thrill, and a prickly feeling went all over the back of my head. Then I hove myself around with a sort of stiff jerk, and stared straight against that queer wind. It seemed to come from the corner of the room to the left of the bed, the place where both times I had found the heap of tossed bedclothes. Yet, I could see nothing unusual, no opening, nothing. Abruptly, I was aware that the candles were all a flicker in that unnatural wind. I believe I just squatted there and stared in a horribly frightened, wooden way for some minutes. I shall never be able to let you know how disgustingly horrible it was sitting in that vile, cold wind. And then, flick, 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 all the candles round the outer barrier went out and there I was, locked and sealed in that room, and with no light beyond the weakish blue glare of the electric pentacle. A time of abominable tenseness passed, and still the wind blew upon me, and then, suddenly, I knew that something stirred in the corner to the left of the bed. I was made conscious of it, rather by some inward, unused sense than by either sight or sound, for the pale, short radius glare of the pentacle gave but very poor light for seeing by. Yet, as I stared, something began slowly to grow upon my sight—a moving shadow, a little darker than the surrounding shadows. I lost the thing amid the vagueness, and for a moment or two I glanced swiftly from side to side, with a fresh, new sense of impending danger. Then my attention was directed to the bed— All of the coverings were being drawn steadily off with a hateful, stealthy sort of motion. I heard the slow, dragging slither of the clothes, but I could see nothing of the thing that pulled. I was aware, in a funny, subconscious, introspective fashion, that the creep had come upon me. Yet I was cooler mentally than I had been for some minutes, sufficiently so to feel that my hands were sweating coldly and to shift my revolver, half-consciously, whilst I rubbed my right hand dry upon my knee, though never for an instant taking my gaze or my attentions from those moving clothes. The faint noise from the bed ceased once, and there was a most intense silence, with only the sound of the blood beating in my head. Yet immediately afterward I heard again the slurring of the bedclothes being dragged off the bed in the midst of my nervous tension i remembered the camera and reached round for it but without looking away from the bed and then you know all in a moment the whole of the bed coverings were torn off with extraordinary violence and i heard the flump they made as they were hurled into the corner there was a time of absolute quietness then for perhaps a couple of minutes and you can imagine how horrible i felt the bedclothes had been thrown with such savageness and, then again, the brutal unnaturalness of the thing that had just been done before me. Abruptly, over by the door, I heard a faint noise, a sort of crickling sound, and then a pitter or two upon the floor. A great nervous thrill swept over me, seeming to run up my spine and over the back of my head, for the seal that secured the door had just been broken. Something was there i could not see the door at least i mean to say that it was impossible to say how much i actually saw and how much my imagination supplied i made it out only as a continuation of the gray walls and then it seemed to me that something dark and indistinct moved and wavered there among the shadows abruptly i was aware that the door was opening and with an effort i reached again for my camera but before I could aim it, the door was slammed with a terrific crash that filled the whole room with a sort of hollow thunder. I jumped like a frightened child. There seemed such a power behind the noise, as though a vast, wanton force were out. Can you understand? The door was not touched again, but directly afterward, I heard the basket in which the cat lay creak. I tell you, I fearly pringled all along my back. I knew that I was going to learn definitely whether whatever was abroad was dangerous to life. From the cat there rose suddenly a hideous caterwaul that ceased abruptly. Then, too late, I snapped off the flashlight. In the great glare, I saw that the basket had been overturned, and the lid was wrenched open, with the cat lying half in and half out upon the floor. I saw nothing else, but I was full of the knowledge that I was in the presence of some being or thing that had power to destroy. During the next two or three minutes, there was an odd, noticeable quietness in the room, and you must remember I was half-blinded for the time because of the flashlight, so that the whole place seemed to be pitchy dark just beyond the shine of the pentacle. I tell you, it was most horrible." I just knelt there in the star and whirled around, trying to see whether anything was coming at me. My power of sight came gradually, and I got a little hold of myself, and abruptly I saw the thing I was looking for, close to the water circle. It was big and indistinct, and wavered curiously, as though the shadow of a vast spider hung suspended in the air just beyond the barrier. It passed swiftly round the circle, and seemed to probe ever toward me, but only to draw back with extraordinary jerky movements, as might a living person if they touched the hot bar of a grate. Round and round it moved, and round and round I turned. Then, just opposite to one of the veils in the pentacles, it seemed to pause as though preliminary to a tremendous effort, it retired almost beyond the glow of the vacuum light, and then came straight toward me, appearing to gather form and solidity as it came. There seemed a vast, malign determination behind the movement that must succeed. I was on my knees, and I jerked back, falling onto my left hand and hip, in a wild endeavor to get back from the advancing thing. With my right hand, I grabbed madly from my revolver, which I had let slip. The brutal thing came with one great sweep straight over the garlic in the water circle, almost to the veil of the pentacle. I believe I yelled. Then, just as suddenly as it had swept over, it seemed to be hurled back by some mighty invisible force. It must have been some moments before I realized that I was safe, and then I got myself together in the middle of the pentacle feeling horribly gone and shaken, and glancing round and round the barrier. But the thing had vanished. Yet I had learnt something, for I knew now that the grey room was haunted by a monstrous hand. Suddenly, as I crouched there, I saw what had so nearly given the monster an opening through the barrier. In my movements within the pentacle, I must have touched one of the jars of water, for just where the thing had made its attack, The jar that guarded the deep of the veil had been moved to one side, and this had left one of the five doorways unguarded. I put it back quickly, and felt almost safe again, for I had found the cause, and the defense was still good and I began to hope again that I should see the morning come in. When I saw that the thing so nearly succeeded, I had an awful, weak, overwhelming feeling that the barriers could never bring me safe through the night against such a force. You can understand? For a long time I could not see the hand, but presently I thought I saw, once or twice, an odd wavering over among the shadows near the door. A little later, as though in a sudden fit of malignant rage, the dead body of the cat was picked up and beaten with dull, sickening blows against the solid floor. That made me feel rather queer. A minute afterward, the door was opened and slammed twice with tremendous force. The next instant, the thing made one swift, vicious dart at me from out of the shadows— instinctively i started sideways from it and so plucked my hand from upon the electric pentacle where for a wicked careless moment i had placed it the monster was hurled off from the neighborhood of the pentacle though owing to my inconceivable foolishness it had been enabled for a second time to pass the outer barriers i can tell you i shook for a time with sheer funk I moved right to the center of the pentacles again, and knelt there, making myself as small and compact as possible. As I knelt there, there came to me, presently, a vague wonder at the two accidents which had so nearly allowed the brute to get at me. Was I being influenced to unconscious voluntary actions that endangered me? The thought took hold of me, and I watched my every movement abruptly I stretched a tired leg and knocked over one of the jars of water some was spilled but because of my suspicious watchfulness I had it upright and back within the veil while yet some of the water remained even as I did so the vast black half materialized hand beat up at me out of the shadows and seemed to leap almost into my face so nearly did it approach but for the third time it was thrown back by some altogether enormous, overmastering force. Yet apart from the dazed fright in which it left me, I had for a moment that feeling of spiritual sickness, as if some delicate, beautiful, inward grace had suffered, which is felt only upon the too near approach of the ab human, and is more dreadful in a strange way than any physical pain that can be suffered. I knew by this more of the extent and closeness of the danger, and for a long time I was simply cowed by the butt-headed brutality of the force upon my spirit. I can put it no other way. I knelt again in the center of the pentacles, watching myself with more fear, almost than the monster, for I knew now that unless I guarded myself from every sudden impulse that came to me... I might simply work my own destruction. Do you see how horrible it all was? I spent the rest of the night in a haze of sick fright, and so tense that I could not make a single movement naturally. I was in such fear that any desire for action that came to me might be prompted by the influence that I knew was at work on me, and outside of the barrier that ghastly thing went round and round, grabbing and grabbing in the air at me twice more was the body of the dead cat molested the second time i heard every bone in its body scrunch and crack and all the time the horrible wind was blowing upon me from the corner of the room to the left of the bed then just as the first touch of dawn came into the sky that unnatural wind ceased in a single moment and i could see no sign of the hand the dawn came slowly, and presently the wan light filled all the room, and made the pale glare of the electric pentacle look more unearthly. Yet it was not until the day had fully come that I made any attempt to leave the barrier, for I did not know but that there was some method abroad in the sudden stopping of the wind to entice me from the pentacles. At last, when the dawn was strong and bright, I took one last look round and ran for the door. I got it unlocked in a nervous and clumsy fashion, then locked it hurriedly and went to my bedroom, where I lay on the bed and tried to steady my nerves. Peter came presently with the coffee, and when I had drunk it, I told him I meant to have a sleep as I had been up all night. He took the tray and went out quietly, and after I had locked my door, I turned in properly and at last got to sleep. I woke about midday, and after some lunch, went up to the gray room. I switched off the current from the pentacle, which I had left on in my hurry. Also, I removed the body of the cat. You can understand I did not want anyone to see the poor brute. After that, I made a very careful search of the corner where the bedclothes had been thrown. I made several holes, and probed, and found nothing. Then, it occurred to me to try with my instrument under the skirting. I did so, and I heard my wire ring on metal. I turned the hook end that way and fished for the thing. At the second go, I got it. It was a small object, and I took it to the window. I found it to be a curious ring made of some graying material. The curious thing about it was that it was made in the form of a pentagon, that is, the same shape as the inside of the magic pentacle. But without the mounts which form the points of the defensive star it was free from all chasing or engraving you will understand that i was excited when i tell you that i felt sure i held in my hand the famous luck ring of the anderson family which indeed was of all the things the most intimately connected with the history of the hauntings the ring was handed down from father to son through generations And always, in obedience to some ancient family tradition, each son had to promise never to wear the ring. The ring, I may say, was brought home by one of the crusaders under very peculiar circumstances, but the story is too long to go into here. It appears that young Sir Holbert, an ancestor of Anderson's, made a bet in drink, you know, that he would wear the ring that night, He did so, and in the morning his wife and child were found strangled in the bed, in the very room in which I stood. Many people, it would seem, thought young Sir Holbert was guilty of having done the thing in drunken anger, and he, in an attempt to prove his innocence, slept a second night in the room. He was also strangled. Since then, as you may imagine, no one has ever spent a night in the grey room until I did so. The ring had been lost so long that it had become almost a myth, and it was most extraordinary to stand there with the actual thing in my hand, as you can understand. It was whilst I stood there, looking at the ring, that I got an idea. Supposing that it were, in a way, a doorway. You see what I mean? A sort of gap in the world hedge. It was a queer idea, I know, and probably was not my own, but came to me from the outside. You see, the wind had come from that part of the room where the ring lay. I thought a lot about it. Then, the shape, the inside of a pentacle. It had no mounts, and without mounts, as the Sigsund manuscript has it, the mounts which are the five hills of safety. To lack is to give power to the demon, and surely to favor the evil thing. You see, the very shape of the ring was significant, and I determined to test it. I unmade the pentacle, for it must be made afresh and around the one to be protected. Then I went out and locked the door, after which I left the house to get certain matters, for neither yarbs nor fire nor ware must be used a second time. I returned about seven-thirty, and as soon as the things I had brought had been carried up to the gray room, I dismissed Peter for the night, just as I had done the evening before. When he had gone downstairs, I let myself into the room and locked and sealed the door. I went to the place in the center of the room, where all the stuff had been packed, and set to work with all my speed to construct a barrier about me and the ring. I do not remember whether I explained it to you, But I had reasoned that if the ring were in any way a medium of admission, and it were enclosed with me in the electric pentacle, it would be, to express it loosely, insulated. Do you see? The force which had visible expression as a hand would have to stay beyond the barrier which separates the ab from the normal, for the gateway would be removed from accessibility. As I was saying, I worked with all my speed to get the barrier completed about me in the ring, for it was already later than I cared to be in that room, unprotected. Also, I had a feeling that there would be a vast effort made that night to regain the use of the ring, for I had the strongest conviction that the ring was a necessity to materialization. You will see whether I was right. I completed the barriers in about an hour, and you can imagine something of the relief I felt when I felt the pale glare of the electric pentacle once more all about me. From then onward, for about two hours, I sat quietly, facing the corner from which the wind came. About eleven o'clock, a queer knowledge came that something was near to me, yet nothing happened for a whole hour after that. Then, suddenly, I felt the cold, queer wind begin to blow upon me. To my astonishment, it seemed now to come from behind me, and I whipped round with a hideous quake of fear. The wind met me in the face. It was blowing up from the floor close to me. I stared down in a sickening maze of new frights. What on earth had I done now? The ring was there, close behind me, where I had put it. Suddenly, as I stared, bewildered, I was aware that there was something queer about the ring funny, shadowy movements and convolutions. I looked at them, stupidly, and then, abruptly, I knew that the wind was blowing up at me from the ring. A queer, indistinct smoke became visible to me, seeming to pour upward through the ring and mix with the moving shadows. Suddenly, I realized that I was in more than any mortal danger, for the convoluting shadows about the ring were taking shape, and the death hand was forming within the pentacle. My goodness, do you realize it? I had brought the gateway into the pentacles, and the brute was coming through, pouring into the material world as gas might pour out from the mouth of a pipe. I should think that I knelt for a moment in a sort of stunned fright. Then, with a mad, awkward movement, I snatched at the ring, intending to hurl it out of the pentacle. Yet it eluded me, as though some invisible thing jerked it hither and thither. At last I gripped it, yet in the same instant it was torn from my grasp with incredible and brutal force. A great black shadow covered it, and rose into the air, and came at me. I saw that it was the hand, vast and nearly perfect in form. I gave one crazy yell, and jumped over the pentacle and the ring of burning candles, and ran despairingly for the door. I fumbled idiotically and ineffectually with the key, and all the time I stared with a fear that was like insanity toward the barriers. The hand was plunging toward me, yet, even as it had been unable to pass into the pentacle when the ring was without, so now that the ring was within, it had no power to pass out. The monster was chained as surely as any beast would be were chains riveted upon it. Even then, I got a flash of this knowledge, but I was too utterly shaken with fright to reason, and the instant I managed to get the key turned, I sprang into the passage and slammed the door with a crash. I locked it and got to my room somehow, for I was trembling so that I could hardly stand, as you can imagine. I locked myself in and managed to get the candle lit, and then lay down on my bed and kept quiet for an hour or two, and so got steadied. I got a little sleep later, but woke when Peter brought my coffee. When I had drunk it, I felt altogether better, and took the old man along with me whilst I had a look into the grey room. I opened the door and peered in. The candles were still burning, wan against the daylight, and behind them was the pale glowing star of the electric pentacle, and there, in the middle, was the ring, the gateway of the monster, Lying demure and ordinary. Nothing in the room was touched, and I knew that the brute had never managed to cross the pentacles. Then I went out and locked the door. After a sleep of some hours, I left the house. I returned in the afternoon in a cab. I had with me an oxy hydrogen jet and two cylinders containing the gases. I carried the things into the gray room, and there, in the center of the electric pentacle, I erected the little furnace. Five minutes later, the luck ring, once the luck and now the bane of the Anderson family, was no more than a little solid splash of hot metal. Carnacki felt in his pocket and pulled out something wrapped in tissue paper— He passed it to me. I opened it and found a small circle of greyish metal, something like lead, only harder and rather brighter. "'Well,' I asked at length after examining it and handing it round to the others, "'did that stop the haunting?' Carnacki nodded. "'Yes,' he said. "'I slept three nights in the grey room before I left. Old Peter nearly fainted when he knew I meant to.' but by the third night he seemed to realize that the house was just safe and ordinary, and you know, I believe in his heart, he hardly approved. Karnaki stood up and began to shake hands. Out you go, he said genially, and presently we went, pondering, to our various homes. This story was first published in 1910 in *The Idler*. Thomas Carnacki is a fictional occult detective created by English fantasy writer William Hope Hodgson. Carnacki was the protagonist of a series of six short stories published between 1910 and 1912 in *The Idler* magazine and *The New Magazine*. These stories were printed together as *Carnacki, the Ghost Finder* in 1913. A 1948 Arkham House edition of Carnacki, the Ghost Finder, edited by August Erlith, added three stories. The Haunted Jarvie, published posthumously in the Premier Magazine in 1929, The Hog, published in Weird Tales in 1947, and The Find, a previously unpublished story. The stories were inspired by the tradition of fictional detectives such as Sherlock Holmes. Carnacki lives in a bachelor flat in number 472 Shane Walk, Chelsea. The stories are told from a first-person perspective by Dodgson, a member of Carnacki's strictly limited circle of friends, much as Holmes' adventures were told from Watson's point of view. His other friends are Jessup, Arkwright, and Taylor. Whereas the Holmes stories never made use of supernatural except as a red herring, this is the central theme of the Carnacki stories, though several of the stories have non-supernatural endings. The character of Carnacki was inspired in part by Dr. Hesalus, a supernaturally inclined scientist who appeared in short stories by the Irish fantasy writer Sheridan Le Fanu, notably the early and influential vampire story Carmilla. Carnacki is also highly reminiscent of Algernon Blackwood's John Silence. Unlike some of Hodgson's work, the Carnacki stories remain very accessible to a modern audience. A.F. Kidd and Rick Kennett, in their introduction to number 472 Shane Walk, Carnacki, The Untold Stories, pose the question, what is it about Thomas Carnacki that fascinates so many people? According to Kidd and Kennett, the series' enduring attraction comes more from Hodgson's capacity for world-building than any special appeal of Carnacki himself. Quote, It certainly isn't his dynamic personality. Not much character is evident in Hodgson's creation. He is your generic, stiff, upper-lip Edwardian Englishman. But the exotic landscapes he inhabits are supernatural. It's his exploits and the carefully constructed milieu in which they take place that continues to intrigue. They are quite timeless. Although a self-proclaimed fan of Hodgson's work, H.P. Lovecraft considered Carnacki the Ghostfinder vastly inferior to his earlier novels, calling it his poorest work, and Carnacki himself, very weak, artificial, and stereotyped. Surely, only a mediocre echo of John's silence. Well, I hope you've enjoyed the story for this evening. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to us via our email at bygonetalesgmail.com. At you can also find us on Facebook at Bygone Tales Podcast. We also have a webpage at McCartneyLane.com. Just click on the link for podcasts and click on the link for Bygone Tales. Each episode has its own page and a section for comments, so feel free to drop by and leave a comment. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Google Play Music, Stitcher, or wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you again, and until next time.